Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Dan Burkery is a New York-based freelance drummer and percussionist with a master's degree in jazz studies from Philadelphia's University of the Arts. Dan currently subs on multiple Broadway drum and percussion chairs, including Hamilton, Moulin Rouge, The Book of Mormon, Wicked, and Dear Evan Hansen. In the past, he's worked on shows like Frozen, Mean Girls, Bandstand, Tootsie, Amelie, and The Share Show. Dan can be seen playing drums on Amazon Prime's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Comedy Central's Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, and on numerous PBS specials featuring the American Pops Orchestra. Dan originated the drum book for the off-Broadway musical Ride the Cyclone and is currently working on developing the Broadway-bound musical Lem Pica. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Burkley. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Dan Burkery. He is currently in San Diego working on a new show. What's the show called? So it's called Lempika. What is it about? Uh, it's about this Polish painter named Tamara de Lempika, who uh, it's a pretty circuitous plot, but she more or less flees, I believe it was... Poland, actually, at the time. I'm going to get my facts wrong. I've been worrying about the Ableton stuff all week and not about the plot of the actual show. But she falls in love with a model that she's painting when she moves to Paris. Uh, She's married to her husband. It's all happening between the two great wars. So after World War I, before World War II, um, she's Jewish. She's bisexual. um, She falls in love with a woman. And the show is like, these are all like little highlights but uh, the show is basically about women and about uh, her falling in love with this muse and painting her in art. And um, I've been joking for a while now that my elevator pitch for this show is God awful. So, um, <laughs> but I mean, the, the best thing I can say is the music is like my favorite show music I've probably ever played. Uh, and it's a lot of like different time signatures different grooves that I probably wouldn't have thought to play myself um, on first hearing something. And the composer is just like virtuosic in a lot of ways um, in what he writes and how he storytells through music and the lyrics do kind of the same thing. So uh, it's definitely like a character study about this woman and all these people around her in her life. It's really, really cool. How did you get involved with that show? I was asked by a friend to come up to Williamstown Theater Festival in 2017 to do a reading for a 29-hour reading. I remember the text being, the money's terrible, but check out this cast. (laughs) Uh, You're going to want to do it because the cast is really good, but I totally understand if you can't. And then he told me who was in it for the reading, and the reading was, it was something ridiculous. It was Stephen Pasquale, Cynthia Erivo, uh, Michael Kilgore was in the ensemble. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, it was a lot of really, really incredible people in the first reading that I did. And, you know, it's one of those, I was on an Amtrak train listening to demos with a piano vocal score in front of me with no charts, really, just this PV. But I took one listen to the opening number and I was like, man, I need to, I need to figure out what I'm playing on all this stuff before I get there because if I'm going to be figuring it out in the rehearsal room, 
it's not going to happen. You know, it's just too complicated and you're turning pages every four measures, you know, but it, it went so well that first time that there were other iterations years after that, like the following year, there was a production at Williamstown, a full like eight week long process where we, I think we only actually ran for 10 days at the end of all of it. Like we were open for 10 days, but there was like two previews or something, something insane. And uh, one day of tech and everything else was rehearsal. (laughs) Yeah, that was the beginning of it. And then everything since then has been either, I think we did two more readings and two more labs, if I'm remembering correctly. So like a developmental workshop for like six to four weeks or so and varying degrees of high fidelity. You know, like the, the one time I think it was no sound whatsoever. And the other time we had a bass player and Ableton and I'm running Ableton for the whole thing. And, uh, and like mics on actors and stuff. I think I saw you posting about doing a reading with like having an avium and having mics on your drones. It's like, wait, this, we're still in the same rehearsal studio. I've done a million readings in like, that's, this doesn't, this isn't how you do this. Right. I want to kind of go back. Cause I didn't really get to the beginning of the, of the show and introducing you to my audience here. You, studied uh at the philadelphia university of the arts correct that's where you went to college where'd you grow up i grew up in telford pennsylvania which is uh i I used to think as a kid oh we're suburban philadelphia but i was like an hour north of philly surrounded by 300 acres of corn you know just like vastness around us um had to drive to get anywhere growing up but there was a basement and I could play the drums in the basement. So that, that helped a lot being able to make noise, you know, not living in the city. What was your first musical memory? My stepdad was a drum instructor actually for a couple different high schools in the area. And he gave me some sticks. I don't I want to say when I was probably in like second grade or so. And I'll never forget bringing the sticks to my friend's house. This is actually before we moved to Telford, but when I was actually living around other people, um, in another town in rural Pennsylvania, it doesn't really matter where, but, uh, I went to my friend's house and started playing these sticks on his bike tires. Cause I didn't, you know, as a kid, I was second grade, I didn't know what I was doing. And my stepdad found out and he was like, you don't do that. That's not what you use those sticks for. And he took them back for like six months. And then he's like, no, gave them back to me. He's like, now you can use these, but like, you gotta, you gotta hit the right things with them. So then I started hitting like pots and pans and stuff. But uh, that was probably my first musical memory is uh, just having having the urge to to hit stuff. You know, so you were playing on the rubber part of the tire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, like, like, that's a practice pad. It's just a rotating <laughs> practice See? pad. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you, like you were way ahead of us. You know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Little did I know. So, did you have drummers that that were playing around in your area, or you just you know picked up the drumsticks and? That's just what you wanted to do. Did, was there anybody that you were trying to emulate? I think it was him. I mean, my stepdad was definitely my first influence in that way because we were going to, he used to teach at Quakertown High School, Souderton High School, Lehigh High School, and a couple of, uh, Archbishop Wood, it was another Pennsylvania high school that he was a drum instructor for. And it was all these outdoor, and actually, no, there was indoor too. Um, in the winter, there was this indoor drumline thing that he always did. And he was a judge for DCA, DCI. He had marched for Madison Scouts in the 70s, which is like a big deal. 
next level drum corps. So I was around that growing up and it was like probably before I could even really remember um, knowing what was happening. I was just hearing this stuff all the time. And I ended up not ever really marching myself, but I was going to that stuff like all the time as a kid. So I was around it. I've seen people with like incredible hands from a young age, you know, um, I still wish I had hands like that. <laughs> Crazy. So you never was, you never were interested in doing the, the drum corps thing? Um, not really. I, I guess I was more focused on jazz band. You know, I got luckily when I was in seventh grade, um, I auditioned for the jazz band and my middle school band director threw me a bone and was like, yeah, you're young. You'll be here for another two years or whatever. We'll get you in the band early so I can groom you and make sure you understand how to play the drums in a jazz band. Um, and, but beca like, because of that, I was the youngest kid and there were two older drummers who were way better than me that, uh, were like, that was my focus when I was around that age was like, I'm not nearly that good. How do I get better at this? Like those eighth graders, like those ninth graders. Um, and then like, I kept auditioning for jazz band throughout the rest of high school. And I'd actually didn't get back into jazz band after eighth grade. I didn't get back into that band until junior year of high school. Like I, I didn't make the audition freshman or sophomore year. So I failed pretty early on, you know? Wow. Yeah. Um, but that actually kind of led me to musical theater, strangely. Cause um, in ninth grade I had auditioned, I can't speak. I auditioned for, the jazz band and the consolation prize, the like fifth or sixth place or whatever it was, was to play for the musical for the high school musical. And it was anything goes at the time, which as you know, I'm sure is like a very traditional old school swinging Broadway show. And when I told my stepdad, who was like more or less my drum set teacher from like seventh grade through high school, when I told him that he was like, actually that's not, the worst case scenario, like you go play this thing, you're going to play jazz. Um, not the same as we know, you know, but like as a kid, it's no different. It's like, yeah, I, I can play swing. I'm nine. I'm in ninth grade. I know how to play swing. Yeah. Um, which I didn't, but I've, I figured some stuff out. <laughs> and then, but every year after that, I did the musical, even when I was in jazz band. So that kind of got my gears spinning with that early on. It's almost like, you know, the consolation prize was musicals, but it's like, why is that like the, the worst thing that you, it's not really uh, the worst thing you can do, but it seems like, let's, well, let's put them over here. But then you yeah. wind up doing that and that's where your career is, which is. Yeah. You know, I, I wondered about that too, when I was younger, like, I think it might've had something to do with the jazz band goes to competitions, you know, like they have a grade. Um, the, there were two bands when I was in, in high school and the lab band was supposed to be for like underclassmen. The main band was supposed to be for, you know, they go out and they compete and they win. Um, and they didn't, but still like there was some element of that sports thing in there, which isn't all bad. I don't think it, it does force you to try to get better and like improve yourself as a musician and you're trying to work together as a team to achieve a goal. But in all reality, it's like music as a craft, isn't a competition. Right. So that's weird. And that's kind of at odds with what we find ourselves doing because I don't know, like 
don't know how you felt, but like as competitive as New York City is and can be at times, it's like the community around you um, is not, I don't feel like it's as cutthroat as I thought it would be. I actually feel very supported by a lot of people, which is at odds with that competitive thing, you know? That's the way I see the drumming community on Broadway. It's, mm. it's, it's competitive to try to get your own show because there aren't very many. Sure. But we all support each other because we know kind of what it takes to get there and we need each other to, to help us achieve, you know, keep the show going while we're uh, working. Absolutely. In high school, did you wind up being exposed to different types of music or was it specifically jazz that you just were like focused on at the time? Um, yeah, it was actually very much jazz focused when I was that age. Um, I definitely listened to other stuff. You know, I was listening to like Smash Mouth and uh, Third Eye Blind. That band was a big, big deal for me when I was growing up. Um, but yeah, the stuff that I like really practiced was Buddy Rich, you know, um, Dave Weckl stuff. I don't even, it's so funny to think about that now, like live and very plugged in the Dave Weckl record. If you don't know that, check it out. It's I haven't heard killing. that. I just remember it's his first killing. one. Yeah. That one's amazing. Master plan. Yes. That? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Killing, killing. But it's funny to think about now. Cause I would like go into my basement, have no idea what's happening on this record and just play along with it. And it probably helped a lot, you know, it, just navigating my way through those songs, having no clue what's happening, but trying to emulate a little bit of what was happening. Um, there's like some crazy music on that, on that record. Did you listen to uh, Chick Corea's Electric Band back then? Um, that was happening a little before I was aware of, of Dave Weckl's stuff. So I think he had like since not really been playing with Chick as much. Okay. Um, I kind of found that stuff later in college, but. So you were playing jazz in high school, doing the competitions and you went to uh, Philadelphia university. University of the arts. Philadelphia university of the arts. Yeah. Uh, I'm only, only making the distinction because Philadelphia university is like, another college just outside of the city. Um, but yeah, the University of the Arts used to be called Philadelphia College of Performing Arts. Okay. Um, and they, I forget what year they switched over and there became a university, but it used to be like a conservatory and then they branched out. Now there's like, uh, you know, a visual arts program, um, sculpture program. There's a theater program, obviously. Um, dance, all this other stuff, but uh, no sports teams. So it's very much like an arts school. So yeah, that, that was, that was great. And I stayed there for five years. I got a master's there actually master's in jazz studies, which, you know, every gig I go on, they make sure to ask me for that <laughs> master's did, sir, excuse me. <laughs> Put the sticks that Paper, way. Did, you see exactly. Let me see your, your resume, please. Yes. <laughs> no masters. No, you can't play. Here. No, sorry. <laughs> Are you a master, I, sir? Are you a master? <laughs> I know I, I I would have failed every one of those gigs because I didn't get a degree in music. And I always wonder when when people go to universities to study uh, music, what made you decide to go there and not to Berkeley or to Juilliard or any other place? Um, I think I was scared to do any of those like top tier music schools, to be perfectly honest. Um, 
And my, my path there actually wasn't quite leave high school, go right to UArts, actually. It was um, my father, who was incredibly supportive. I couldn't ask for a better support system for my family. But he is an editor at the Philadelphia Daily News. So I actually kind of always thought I would be a journalist if I didn't become a musician. And I actually went to Temple University for a single semester. My very, very first semester of college, I went technically as a journalism major, but I didn't really get to any journalism courses. It was all like gen ed stuff at the time. And I was waking up at like 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings to go to the University of the Arts to get drum lessons from this guy, Mark DiGiani, because I didn't want to stop playing drums. So I got to school and I'm thinking like, well, you know, I've been playing drums my whole life. I don't want to stop playing drums. I'll keep getting lessons. I got recommended to go see this guy from somebody I trusted. And it was so inspirational. It was so, you know, it kept me wanting to play so much that I think I was going like twice a month in the beginning. And then he was like, you know, you're actually practicing. Um, You should come once a week so I can give you more stuff to do. And I did. Maybe, I don't know if that was a cash grab on his part. Mm. (laughs) You know, like, maybe you should probably come here four times a month. (laughs) It wasn't, I know it's not. But but at a certain point, he was kind of leading me down the path of like, you could probably do this. You seem focused enough to want to do this. Um, Maybe you should consider taking a fall audition to come for the spring semester. And I did that, auditioned quickly, got in quickly. And I got to the end of that semester at Temple and I was like, I don't need to do this. I need to go to music school, you know? Um, so that was how I got to UArts. And I had taken some auditions in high school, but I only got into like one school in the middle of Pennsylvania somewhere. And I didn't want to go there. If I wanted to be a musician, I was like, I got to be around the city. And I didn't get into the other school that I auditioned for in a city somewhere. So, you know, I kind of, it was like plan B, but also keeping plan A kind of in the back of my mind the whole time. That's how I ended up there. When you're in music school, and I noticed this from a lot of uh, people who I've talked to and just looking at some of your social social media, you transcribe drum solos. I think that's incredible. I was Thanks. I was looking at it earlier today. I was like, "How?" I, I'm like trying to read it. I'm like, "I, I, I get it." Uh, man, I'll send it to you, man. <laughs> no, you no, I'm it? good. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, do you slow down the tape, or you just like take it bit by bit and you write down what you hear? How does it work? Depends. It's both for me usually. Uh, I know a lot of people have this like vitriolic dis- disdain for slowing stuff down when you transcribe. I'm really? serious. Like it, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, and I heard a lot of people at jazz school say that, like, whatever you do, like if you want vocabulary, don't slow it down. You need to be able to just listen to it and learn the language. But what I always found fascinating was like, I understand this language a lot better when I slow it down <laughs> to understand it, you know? Um, so it would just depend on the tempo. Like um, the, there's one on my Instagram actually, a solo by this guy, Byron Landum, who, if you don't know, man, he's like one of the greatest, one of my favorite drummers of all time mm. and easily one of the greatest drummers from Philadelphia that's ever lived. Um, he's still alive very much. He's not uh, an old man by any stretch. Um, but there's that particular solo is like super slow. It's like, I think it's like 120. They're just playing a blues and 
stuff like that. No, I wouldn't slow that down because that's like digestible at that tempo. But yeah, I mean, Max Roach at uh, 400 beats per minute or whatever the heck Cherokee is like, yeah, you, you yeah. better slow that down. You're never <laughs> going to be able to figure out what it is. <laughs> so is that something that they required you to do? Um, yeah, I, I think for our juries, we had to do one transcription per year, which I did way more than that. Cause I, I actually, it helped me digest that information a lot better than just listening. Cause it forces me to listen to something over and over and over again. And then by the end of it, you're like, well, this is kind of like taking notes in history class. You know, you're sitting there trying to write out what you're hearing. And then when you can connect what you're seeing to what you're hearing, um, but I think the thing that I didn't do a lot in college, which I do now, is try to memorize those solos a chunk at a time. So like a four-bar phrase, I'll take and isolate it, loop it, play it just with a click or whatever. And I'll look at it once, just try to play it without looking at it. Look at it again, okay, play it again. And I wish I had done that in school because I would have memorized a lot more of those solos. I just probably didn't have enough time, to be perfectly honest. I was learning so much music all the time theory homework, ear training homework. Um, it's very intense, even for a school like that, like not Manhattan School of Music or Berkeley or Juilliard. Like even still, I felt like I needed to have my shit together to just to get through every semester of all these music classes that um, as a drummer in high school, I wasn't playing a lot of piano. I did a little bit, but to really understand what else was happening other than the drums that was the, the hard work that i'm glad i did you know i'm glad that i spent the time doing all that stuff because it made working a lot easier in a lot of respects when you graduated from philadelphia university of the arts mm-hmm. you had choices did you want to stay in philadelphia go to la nashville and you wound up in new york why did you choose new york um i initially didn't want to move. I thought, uh, I had kind of a decent hustle going at the time. I was working a restaurant job. I was playing gigs at night and I was paying my bills. Okay. You know, the gigs were, were decent and I was playing in a couple of wedding bands, like subbing for friends in wedding bands. And I did a theater gig at the media theater. It's like South of the city in Philly. And it didn't pay any kind of money. It was like, you know, 75 bucks a service or something. But I got to the begin or no, the end of the first show. And there was a, a whole season after that. And I was like, Oh, I could, okay. If there's going to be shows here every year, I can kind of work around this, find other gigs in between all this. And like, I could do this in Philly, but then my teacher who uh, I had studied with for like four years at UArts, Joe Nero Sr., not senior. I, I realized from listening to Joe's episode that he's, his dad is not a senior. He's just other Joe Nero. But mm-hmm. Joe Nero that we know's dad, he was my teacher. And he did all of the shows at the Walnut Street Theater in Philly. And he was doing Grease at the time, or he was about to be doing Grease. And Wicked was also coming to town. So they usually would hire him to play percussion on a lot of these tours that would go through the city and wicked paid a lot better than the walnut did. So he was trying to see if he could get out of six weeks of Greece to do wicked. And he wanted to see if I would do it. And of course I was like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the best gig I've ever seen, you know, making more money than I've ever seen in my life. And 
I got done with that and I was like, wow, uh, what else can I do for theater gigs in Philly now? Like I, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> mm. That was like the gig, the, the steady gig, you know? Um, and the only other gig to do would be the gigs that my teacher was doing and it's not going to stop doing them anytime soon. So I could just stay here and wait around or I could move to New York and try to do this there, you know? So that's kind of what brought me there. It was like, I think I've, I, I just certainly hadn't like, you know, gone on tour with Jill Scott or anything. Cause that's her band um, all comes from Philly. I think uh, Jay-Z's bands are all from Philly. John Legend's band. Most of those guys are from Philly. Yes. So like other stuff was happening there, but that wasn't where I was finding myself. Um, and even in the jazz world, like I was doing restaurant gigs and stuff and I was playing at Chris's every so often, but it wasn't, it wasn't putting food on my table the way, theater gigs were and theater gigs in Philly, as opposed to theater gigs in New York, it's a little bit more sustainable. If you can find your way into the Broadway thing and Joe, uh, older Joe, uh, hit me to his son. He was like, you know, call my son. If you decide to move, he can kind of like introduce you to some people. And that's kind of how that went. Like I moved and met up with Joe junior who's not a junior. Mm. And, uh, and he kind of like gave me a couple people's numbers and I tried to reach out a little bit and cold call some people. And a lot of people didn't call me back, which was totally cool. And a couple people did. And some of those people that did are my friends to this day. So crazy. <laughs> so breaking into the New York scene, mm-hmm. you know, I asked some people that have, uh, that I've talked to what, did you re- uh, what would you recommend someone do to introduce yourself into uh the scene the 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 Broadway community what what kind of things do you recommend somebody do If you like what you hear on this show subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash bd101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. We appreciate any support you can give. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast.
Well, it is a really good question. I'm trying to think of like what I did was I cold emailed quite a few people, which I'm not sure is always the best way to go about it, but I feel like going to people's gigs is a big deal. Um, cause you're supporting them, you know, taking lessons from people too. I always mm-hmm. thought was, I mean, that, that can be a little, th- there's some baggage there. Cause like, you don't know that then you're putting yourself in a position where you're not necessarily a peer of someone, you're their student for that day. But I always felt like whenever I would ask somebody to donate their time <laughs> that I was just really asking an awful lot of a stranger, you know, uh, it's one thing to like pre COVID we were able to go audit shows pretty easily. And there were quite a few people that I reached out to, to say like, I'd love to buy you a coffee. I'd love to buy you a meal, whatever, just to like pick your brain. I could take a lesson, whatever it is. But a lot of them responded with, well, I'm doing a show. You just want to come watch the show. (laughs) Do you want to meet me for coffee right before my show so that I can do this on my way to work? And it's like convenient. So I think, whatever you're doing to reach out to people, nothing is really wrong as long as you're not inconveniencing the person you're trying to reach out to, because we all have lives. Um, and even me, like and nobody reaches out to me because I don't have a gig to, to, to uh, come audit. But um, even me, like if, if somebody does reach out, I want it to make, make sense. Like I don't want to just on a whim hang out for three hours without knowing who I'm hanging out with. Like if it's a recommendation from a friend, absolutely. I'm happy to give my time. I'm happy to go to coffee and get lunch with somebody. If I know that it's not going to be a pain, you know? So I think just remembering that other people's time is valuable as valuable as yours is really, really important. Um, because you just don't want to waste anybody's time. You don't want to uh, pester them. You know, that's, that's tough too. Cause you, you're hungry when you first get to the city, I think. And you really, really want to get some stuff happening and the bills are due. And like, you, you know, you gotta be, gotta be playing gigs in New York if you want to pay your rent. So um, just being patient, I feel like is also a big deal. Cause I did not walk in New York city and just start playing. That's just not what my experience was. Um, I did a couple gigs. I went back to Philly a lot for gigs, but then I knew I had to pay the rent. So I got a dog walking job when I first got there. I waited tables for a long time. I did catering jobs. Um, I worked at ESPN.com for a minute for like all of like three weeks or something. (laughs) Wow. Uh, That's a longer story. Uh, we can, (laughs) we can talk about that one off air, but, um, Yeah. So like, I feel like anything you can do to allow yourself to be patient, (laughs) if that makes sense, because there's nothing worse than like when you're over eager, that can be good. And it's good to be hungry, especially when somebody needs a sub last minute, you know, Oh, this guy's great. He's available. It's good to know. Right. But if you're over eager, sometimes you can rub people the wrong way and then they don't call you because you're, you're bothering them too much, you know, even though, you may be great and you may be the perfect person for this job to come in and do some church gig last minute, whatever. Um, I feel like just respecting other people's time and their, their workplace. Um, it goes a lot longer than you think it does. I remember when I met 
Sean McDaniel the first time, uh, it was literally like, like that. Like Joe had given me his number, call this guy. He's really nice. And he is, and he'll be, he'll be super cool. He'll probably let you come watch book of Mormon. And he did. He was just super, super nice the whole time. And I was just trying to stay out of his way. Like you tell me where to go. I, I will do whatever you need me to do. I, I got there on time. Didn't make him wait. We got to the end of the show. He's like, super, you know, speed walking out of the show as you do after whatever it was at that time, like six years into the run. And we got onto the street and he was like, well, it's, it's great to meet you. Uh, it, it's also nice to know you're not crazy. Have a great night. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big deal. I think is just trying to make sure that people understand that you're so appreciative of their time. If you ask somebody out for coffee, buy them a coffee. They're donating your time or their time to come hang out with you. Like buy them a coffee. If you ask them for a lesson, you know, pay them, pay them exactly what they ask for, for the lesson and anything that would potentially inconvenience somebody try to take all of that on, you know, like they're giving you your time, their time, try to make it worth their time somehow. What was the first show that you had the opportunity to sub on in New York city? It was newsies on percussion for Ed Shea actually. Um, and that was, that was interesting because that was while I was walking dogs. That was while I was doing restaurant jobs and stuff. And I didn't have a place to practice. I just had my apartment, you know, and thankfully we had a decent enough sized living room that I could put this crappy $200 xylophone up against the wall and shed all these little xylophone licks. Um, and at the time you were allowed to go to the theater to practice between two show days for like 90 minutes. And I did everyone. Like I, I got out of dog walking on those days and just like went to the theater to practice. But then they tell you to stop playing like 30 minutes in every time. So, um, yeah, that, that was the first one. And I didn't crash and burn. Thankfully I had probably too much time to learn it. I had about three months. It was one of those like, yeah, why don't you learn it? And, uh, maybe we'll see if we can get you in and, I think it would, it would have been February of 2014. I played the first time and I might've played a total of six times before it closed, you know, but it's just the way it is. That's how it goes. That's the thing that that was actually one of the things I wanted to make sure I illustrated in this interview was that, uh, in my mind at the time, I was like, okay, well, finally I got a chance to play a Broadway show. Great. Now what? you got to wait for the phone to ring again for even for the show that you just successfully did. He's not going to, he doesn't need to take off again until he calls you. So you just got to wait. So, uh, it's not like you just get all of a sudden a capital B on your resume and everybody's going to call you all of a sudden. It's like, yeah. Okay. Get in line, dude. There's six other guys on that sub list that also need to work. And the guy whose job it is wants to play the shows. Like he's got bills to pay too. So it, it needs to be like one of many other things that you're doing. I think if you're subbing, because, uh, just subbing at one show most of the time isn't enough work for somebody to pay your bills in New York city. How'd you meet Ed? That was another, uh, older Joe Nero introduced me to Ed because they had worked together in Atlantic city for a long time. They, they went back to Atlantic city days, Philly days, um, so when he vouched for me, when my teacher vouched for me, Ed was like, oh, okay, well, you, you can meet me for a beer first. And I guess I proved I wasn't a pain in the ass. So um, 
then he gave me a shot. But it was also like, you know, it's contingent on if you do a good job, if you are prepared, if you're a pain to be around, like you don't want to be annoying to the other people in the pit. Like you're some young kid coming into a, a little bit older generation of people that are in this pit. You know, you don't want to just be that too, too energetic kid <laughs> coming into a very relaxed uh, environment. You know, you don't want to upset the, what's the word? Like the equilibrium, the equilibrium of the, of the work environment. So yeah, that was how that worked. It was Joe Nero recommending me to Ed. Uh, Ed gave me a shot. And then I actually, because of that, I almost did the Newsies tour, that first national Newsies tour when they were covering, or sorry, when they were carrying a percussionist in the road bands. Mm. And uh, unfortunately it didn't end up working out. Like they cut the percussion and the guitar from the road band. They just picked them up locally. And that was a drag, you know, it was like one of those near misses. But then because of that, I was able to start subbing at Pippin because the contractor felt so bad that it had fallen through. It was like, what can I do? What can I do to help you generate more work? And it was so funny to hear that at the time. Like, well, I don't know, man, I'm walking dogs right now. So anything you can do is going to give me something, you know? Um, but he was really cool. Uh, and he recommended, not even recommended me. He just like, had me reach out to Sean Rittenauer at Pippin, who was the percussionist at Pippin and ask if he needed any subs. And again, he didn't either. I think I was like number seven on his list, but he was super cool about like, yeah, sure. Why not? You can come check it out. Uh, how, how long do you need? Do you need like four weeks, like, like six weeks? And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> four weeks, four weeks is great. And then I like went to the theater every day practiced way too much at the theater, but that was enclosed. So you could actually practice there a lot longer, which was a godsend because that was a lot of music, but those were the first two. And then they both kind of closed. So <laughs> around the same time. Wow. That was a great. <laughs> what was the first drum set show that you uh, worked on? Uh, the first drum set show would have been Avenue Q actually for Joe C. How'd you meet Joe? We did a, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS show together. One of those ones, I think it was the one at the the New Amsterdam. Um, it would have been early 2014, late 2014. I can't, I can't quite remember when that happened. He will remember. He remembers dates like, I don't know how he does it. He's got like stats in his brain somehow. But, uh, but yeah, it would have been after that. Like we had played one where I was playing percussion. He was playing drums. And we got along really well. I think we had known each other from doing Newsies too. Like we never played a show together, but I think I had been watching when he was playing uh, for, for Paul Davis, he was subbing and you know, we got along really well and he's a drum nerd as much as I am. So uh, we hit it off in that way. And uh, he, I guess he was looking for somebody, somebody had to have gotten a show. Cause you know how it is with an off Broadway show, you're trying to take off uh, and you want to have a good, batch of subs to be able to take off, but also, you know, it's half the money if, if not less sometimes depending on the contract. So it's hard to get people that are really, really busy to come in and sub for you because why would they come sub for you if they can go do a Broadway show and make two to three times more money. So it was good timing. You know, he just happened to not be Yeah, Sorry. He happened to be looking for somebody. And uh, we had just met like probably a year before that, I want to say, 
and we had worked together. So he knew I was like competent enough, I guess. And then that was great. He, he had me in there a lot for a little while because I was always available. It was a lot of like last minutes, a lot of him getting a last minute call to play somewhere else. And then me getting a last minute call to jump in at like, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock on a, on, you know, Saturday or something to go play at night. So it was great. So to increase your work opportunities in New York city as a sub in order to get, uh, connected to the matrix of, of Broadway, what are some of the things you recommend? You know, I was just going to, I was going to ask you, did you live in Manhattan? Did you live in the Bronx and Queens, Brooklyn? Did you live close to the, so you lived (laughs) close to the theater district or? No, I lived in Harlem. I actually still live in Harlem. Um, in like, I've been in four different places, but all uptown. So within like 20 to 30 minutes from the theater district, which that was actually a thing when I was first moving, I was like, I want to try to stay in Manhattan as affordably as I can, you know, and at least for the first couple of years and see what happens. And then thankfully it was cool. And I'm sure I could have found a place in Queens and I would have been equidistant and it would have been perfectly fine. But in my mind, it was like, as long as I don't have to cross a river, <laughs> then let me try that first. So that was definitely the first thing. What was the first Broadway show that you did as a drum sub? Um, that actually came, that's a circuitous story too. So later that year, the year I started playing for Joe was 2015. I do remember that. And later in the summer, uh, Sean McDaniel had been doing Hamilton uh, at the public. So he knew the percussionist, Benny Reiner, who was doing Hamilton at the public and then did it at uh, the Rogers now on Broadway. And I remember being at my restaurant job and getting a text from Benny Reiner. Would you be interested in something on the percussion book for Hamilton? And I was like, Oh, Oh yeah. That show that's definitely going to win like every single Tony in the year. Yeah, of course. But that was like, so, so early days. That was like September of 2015. He was asking me and he wanted me to come in. I think it was either end of September or first week of October. So it was like very soon. And he only had one other sub, I think at the time. So that led to my first drum, uh, drum subbing on Broadway was uh, my third percussion subbing experience. Uh, But because I was there, because I didn't crash and burn and there was an Ableton rig where you're like, you're just starting clicks for the entire show. But if you start them in the wrong place or you misread a conducting cue or whatever, there's a lot of train wrecks that can happen. And the fact that I didn't train wreck and I successfully subbed on percussion there, I think for a couple months, Andres Ferrero was super cool about having me come in and learn the drum book. And I started subbing for him in, I want to say December of 2015. So still like quite a few months pre Tony's before they swept the Tony's. So that was my first one. Was it the most complicated thing you've done at that point? Yeah, definitely at that point. Moving over to the drum chair, having played the percussion chair, I knew where all the clicks started. You know, I knew I had already kind of learned the conductor video. I'd known what things to watch out for. And obviously there were different things to worry about on each book. Um, Because now on the percussion book at that show, it's very specific. Like you read the ink for the most part, and you play exactly what Alex Lacamoire orchestrated. And then you move over to the drum chair and 
there's so much more nuance you have to worry about because you're not just hitting pads. You're not worrying about volume sliders. Now you're actually producing a sound on an acoustic instrument. And that was the biggest learning curve, I think. It was like getting volumes right and getting the time to feel right. Whereas like before, all I was really worrying about was turning the click on, locking in with the drummer I'm sitting in front of. And then now when you're like generating the time, even though there's a click on, you still have to like make it feel like it's moving and um, lock in with the bass player, lock in with the guitar player, and also occasionally be able to hit a button out of time. Like all those kinds of things were not new to me so much. They were just like on another level of, of specificity. Cause I, I think my first 11 shows or something, I was getting a crazy number of notes that were all 100% warranted, you know, like I was definitely learning as I was going and giving a hundred percent effort every time, but you know, it'd be a new batch of things that I needed to really, really work on to come back. Um, so yeah, it was a ton of work both times, but I think having done the percussion book definitely prepared me in a, a way that I didn't think it would for the drum book. You received a lot of notes and you said, you know, you said for the first 11 times you were, mm-hmm. you were getting a lot of notes. A lot of people, when they get notes, they're like, you know what? I did play it like that. I don't know what you're talking about. How did you take the notes and process that whole uh, process? You know, it's human nature to when you, get a critique of your performance to be like, well, no, 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 I did that right. You know, in your mind, at least you never say that out loud, but man, uh, I, I certainly never say it, I say it out loud, but, um, I think it's, it's a really fine line because at the end of the day, even back then I did kind of have the feeling that like, well, if they're giving me notes, they're not firing me. You know, the fact that they're giving you notes means they want you to come back. Because if they didn't want you to come back, they would just be like, all right, yeah, have a good night. <laughs> you know, uh, won't see you next time. Have a good night. Right. So, but if, if they're giving you their time at the end of the show to say, hey, can, can we talk about the feel of uh, number 13? Like, it's just not quite feeling right. Uh, can you try something different next time? Can you just listen to the recording again or, or like anything like that? Um, even if like, you, you think you did the right thing. Um, there's no way to know unless you recorded yourself. So I did record myself a couple times playing the show when I was getting a lot of notes. And most of the time, uh, I agreed with the note, you know, it's, it's amazing what recording yourself will do. You're like, Oh yeah. So this is what I'm subjecting other people to, (laughs) you know? Um, but the other thing is like, I, I mean, I'm in a really good situation now with this music team that I'm working with that we're, it, the communication is so open and everybody's so respectful and, and loving and like it's just like the greatest possible situation. Um, but it's because everybody wants to see everybody else succeed, you know? And I feel like the only time I've ever felt at odds with the music director, it's when I don't feel like they want me to succeed, you know? And mo- but most of the time they want you to succeed. Like they don't want the show to sound bad. They want it to sound good. And they want it to sound the way that they're used to having it sound. So if they're giving you notes, they want it to sound a particular way. And you're not currently giving them enough to make it sound the way they need it to sound. So if you can remove your ego from that equation and just say, okay, yeah. Like what, what can I change? Sometimes, honestly, it's not, a question you need to ask the music director, what do you need me to change? You know what I mean? 
because they're telling you and they hope that you can figure it out. And I mean, sometimes it depends on the relationship you have with the conductor, but um, man, the last thing some conductors want to hear is like, well, can you help me? It's like, no, man, you got to go learn it. <laughs> you got to figure out what I'm talking about. Um, but there, that's a fine line. You know, you, you have to know what battles you can fight and what ones you can't fight. But I feel like at the end of the day, we are all on the same team. Like we want the show to sound as, as good as possible. We want our performances to be as good as possible. And I just try to think about them. Uh, they're giving me the note cause they want to help. You know, they want me to sound better. I want them to have what they need. I want to keep coming back here, you know? So I got, I got to give you whatever you need. So how do I do that? And maybe it's, I ask myself, maybe I can ask you some sort of clarifying question, but most of the time, you just got to get my shit together. <laughs> well, clearly, you're giving people what they need because you went on to sub at Wicked, Boulin Rouge, uh, Dear Evan Hansen, and mm -hmm. you went on to sub. Did you sub for Sean at the Book of Mormon? Mm -hmm. And at Frozen. Ah. Mm -hmm. Did Mean Girls, too. I think that was in there. Couple other ones. I did. Uh, I did Amelie for Epcar twice <laughs> before it closed. <laughs> I did Bandstand a couple times for Adam Wolf. Yes. Uh, Tootsie before that closed. The Share Show was in there, and I'm forgetting a couple others. But that sounds right. That sounds about it. <laughs> wow, that's a uh, long list. So, what was the most difficult one that you did? They're all hard. I I do seriously believe that. I feel I feel like if you get into a situation where you're like, oh, this is this is fine. This is easy. That's when it becomes not easy real quick. Yes. Like there's something you're gonna forget something. You know? When you think it's um, easy, that's when you're gonna get notes like, you know, yeah. page page long. You're like, oh man. For sure. For sure. There are definitely things that make certain shows harder, I think. Um, whenever you're running tracks, like at Book of Mormon, you're running a lot of loops off of the SPD that there's, you know, lots of potential pitfalls there where like, if you can't get the loop to turn off, that's really bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you hit the wrong pad in one of the songs, all nine pads are a different sound and or tempo. <laughs> wow. That's real scary too. That kind of thing. Um, but then, you know, now as shows get more complex, Ableton rigs are more common. Um, at Frozen, there were a couple really scary vamps. Not a couple, it was really one. But I liked to tell myself there was a lot, so you got to be very focused, you know. Um, and usually it's like it's, you get the click turned on and you play with the click, play with the band, it's, and it's fun. But uh, anytime it's something like that where if you don't do something, something doesn't happen on stage, that's, that's really high pressure, I feel like. Um, there's a splash sound at Book of Mormon when uh, he's baptizing this this girl, and I think it's in the Act One. That it's just a stage thing, you know. Like if it doesn't go, it's not a sound cue, so if it doesn't happen. She didn't fall in the water, you know. <laughs> so you got to hit it. You can't make that mistake, you know. Anything like that, and I'm not only singling out that show because there are other shows that are certainly as hard, if not harder, but. Um, it's hard for me to measure them that way just cause like, I feel like I have to go into it respecting that this is a job that you need to try to do as and execute it as well as possible, you know? So since you've executed them um, <laughs> very well, what do you think is the most important thing that any drummer should know 
about being a success playing Broadway musicals? The first thing is for me to always make other people feel like they're supported, you know? Um, and it's, it's interesting because I, I get to play a lot of uh, auditions sometimes, um, dance classes with an accompanist or whatever. And it's a different thing to accompany somebody's audition than it is to play in the band of a Broadway show and to be following the stage while somebody's conducting a bunch of actors on stage um, than it is to follow a single person in a room, you know? So, but in both circumstances, all the performers need to feel supported, I've always thought. So that can mean in a certain moment, they really need the drums to like drive. You really need to drive the bus here. Like at, for a good example is that Wicked, I, I played a bunch of times when I first started there and I was really just trying to listen as much as I could to other people. So if somebody, if I was like ahead of the guitar, I was like, oh no, I'm rushing. You know, I'm rushing. That's bad. And then I would get the note that like, yeah, it's really got to drive there. Like, can you, um, can you like, it, you really got to kind of push it at that moment, whatever the moment was, I can't remember where it was. Um, and what I didn't realize when I was younger was that in that moment, I kind of have to be more confident than I was being, you know, and that's how I can be supportive is to give everybody a bed to lay on at this moment. Cause you know, the recording is not going anymore. You are the drummer right now. You know, you are playing time. They need you to generate the time. And you can't just be only listening and reacting. You have to also be uh, participating in, in the groove. You know, Richard Hammond, the bass player at Hamilton, and for like a million other people, because he's one of the greatest bass players ever. He mentioned that to me at some point in our early, early days, like, you want to be participating in the music making. You don't want to just be reacting to what other people are doing, you know? So you don't want to just react to what the conductor's doing. You want to be like giving them what they need and supporting them can sometimes just be being strong and solid, you know? But then in other times you do need to follow. It's like the, the dichotomy of when do I take the reins and drive the bus here? And when do I like, relax and like let you tell me when that triangle goes and don't don't jump that cue because they didn't do it on stage yet or whatever like you're not seeing the stage so you don't know what's happening up there I, i've seen a lot of people get bugged by conductors speeding up and slowing down in certain parts of shows right because as a drummer it's the antithesis of what we do like we practice our whole lives to not rush <laughs> to not drag to like give us solid time and that's so great and I feel like the people that do that really well, they work all the time because they have great time. But in a theater situation, you need to have that, but also know when you need to relinquish control sometimes because you're not seeing what they're seeing up there. You know, there could be, I mean, th this has happened in a couple shows where we get to the end of a certain song and there's a lead of a show is she may be a cover that day and she's holding this note for four bars and the conductor's just like, she's not going to make it. She's not going to make it. You know, like we gotta go. <laughs> so like you have to, you have to just relinquish your ego in that moment. Like, it's not about me, man. I'm playing the drums. I'm hitting things here. Like we're all on the same team. How do I be supportive? 
we need to go faster right now. It doesn't make any musical sense, but it's not supposed to. Like she's gonna she's gonna stop singing if we go any slower than this. You know what I mean? What is one thing that a drummer should never do while you're in a Broadway pit? There's a bunch of obvious ones, and I'm sure I would be repeating myself and sorry not myself repeating a bunch of your guests by saying something like never show up unprepared because it's like, yeah, of course, (laughs) you know, like anybody that's listening to this, that hasn't played a Broadway show is going to be like, well, okay, man, of course, like I'm going to learn the music, you know, play for the song. Like, of course, of course. Um, But if we're like assuming that you have to be prepared, you have to be, uh, you have to know this show, like all those things don't come unprepared. Don't, um, do all the obvious things. The other thing would be like, don't leave someone's space any differently than it was when you started. If you're subbing, um, don't overstay your welcome when you're there. Like you are a guest in someone's house. I feel like when you're subbing, I mean, I, I haven't, I've only really had one situation where I, it was my own show and I'm kind of in that situation now, but also like sometimes they need to, they need to clean the pit or whatever. Sometimes you need to get out. The stagehands want to go home, you know, that kind of thing. So just being socially aware that like, you can't, can't live in this theater all the time. You can't like try to hang out with everybody after every show. Um, and the other thing is like, don't warm up too loudly before the show. That was a strangely important one for me. Like I never wanted anybody to be bugged when they saw me at the show, you know, and still to this day, like I don't, I remember playing somewhere uh, early days for my subbing experience. And I had been going into the theater a little bit before half hour for like a week or so, like maybe a couple days a week. And I always brought my own hot rods and I tried to like, it was one of the shows where I was turning loops on and off. And I was trying to make sure that like, I understood the programming, whatever, but I, anytime I'd hit the drums, I was trying to just play whisper quiet, just like, where are the cymbals? Where are the drums? Okay. I kind of have an idea. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to hit them that loud until I play the show. It stinks, but that's just the nature of this. Right. And I was staying to watch the show that night and the trumpet player walked by the booth and he like popped his head in and he was like, Hey, I like when you practice here. I can't tell when you're here, (laughs) which is is a big deal i think because like what's the last thing you want to do when you're going to work that day is like you got to hear this drummer just making all kinds of noise for like a half hour it's really like i just want to drink my coffee sit down play my trumpet get on my metro north train home you know <laughs> um so just that that's a big deal like never um yeah just like ne- never make uh, your presence too known, I guess, you know, just try to blend in, try to like make everybody happy, but also like be cool enough to know that sometimes you just got to shut up and let people go about their routine, you know? So I just graduated from Berkeley. You know, I just, I can't wait to get to New York. I'm 20, 25 now. I'm going to be 26 next week. Clayton Craddock. Mm -hmm. I'm brand new into town. (laughs) What advice would you give me to, uh, if, since I'm interested in playing shows, Clayton, this is what you need to do. I would say, Clayton, you need to sub on an off-Broadway show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? But I'm serious. But I'm okay. serious. All right. Um, so, okay. I, great. Now, where do I go? Do I call up Dina at 
at uh, little little shop and yeah. Wait, wait. Where do I find out where these off Broadway shows are? Like, what is there a website that has this stuff? Like, how do you know? I think. I mean, for Broadway stuff, I was definitely checking out IBDB. I don't know if there's off Broadway shows on there, to be honest. Um, but also just like trying to do some sleuthing on social media. I feel like you're not stalking somebody if you're trying to find out, oh, who's the drummer on that show? Uh, this person seems to be posting stuff and tagging Little Shop of Horrors or whatever. Um, maybe send that person a DM and say, I'm new to town, would love to potentially sub for you if you have a need for a sub. Totally understand if you don't. Um, but I feel like getting to that place of like meeting the person is more important than initially subbing for that person because um, at least if you're trying to break into specifically subbing, um, you do have to build some sort of rapport with people. People need to know that you show up on time, that you're going to do a good job when you get there on time, and that uh, you're not going to be a pain when you're there. So what better way to show them that than to like say, hey, I, I would love to sub for you um, if you have the need. But if not, also, I would love to buy you a coffee and meet you because I'm new to town and I don't know anybody and uh, I would love to know more people. And then the other thing you can do is like, if anybody that, you know, not just drummers, like if anybody you went to school with, anybody you grew up with is doing any kind of theater work to have them introduce you to people, like let, let there be an intermediary as much as you can. Cause that goes a long way. Like, like we were saying before, like being, getting a recommendation from a friend will definitely bump somebody up in a line much quicker than, hi, I just graduated from Berkeley and uh, I'm moving to New York and all I want to do is play a Broadway show. And it's like, well, okay, get in line, man. There's like <laughs> 45 people behind me that really want to do this. You know, not even 45 is like the way, way underestimate. You know what I'm saying? Yes, it is. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's the, the only way is to be patient. You know, like you have to, try to meet as many people as you can practice as much as you can. Cause the playing thing, it had, has to be there already. Um, and then I think who was it? Was it Greg German that said, uh, work on your people skills? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cause I mean, that's, that's so much, that's literally everything I'm saying, you know, reach out and buy somebody a coffee. Don't expect them to pay for that coffee. They're donating your time. <laughs> Keep saying your time their time <laughs> you know um because that's what ended up yielding me work you know was meeting somebody in person not necessarily to sub for them professionally but yeah, i mean i i actually i must have known sean mcdaniel for three or four years before i ever had a chance to sub for him and he's recommending me for stuff that he couldn't do or didn't want to do you know like some gig that pays absolutely no money but it's with a bunch of people that he knows might want somebody who's not a pain in the ass to be around. So he'll throw me a gig at some church somewhere or like some one day reading thing or whatever. Um, but that's how you get to that stage. I think it's like, you can't just expect to start subbing, you know, you it's, a, it's such a huge responsibility. Like didn't um, Sammy Marandino said something like that. Like it's my name in the program. And if I take off, people are going to think that I'm there that night and it sounded bad. So you have to be good. 
right? right? Like you have to be as good as me, if not better. And how is he supposed to know that if he's never met you before, you know, if he's never heard you play, if you don't have anything online somewhere of you playing, I mean, uh, hi, I'm, I'm a dude who (laughs) plays drums. Like, Hey, yeah, I know, man, we're in New York city. Like we're in New York city. Roy Haynes lives here. (laughs) I'm serious. You know, like there are a lot of drummers in New York city and there are a lot of really like world-class drummers, people that I couldn't even think about coming close to, you know, they play at the 55 bar every night and you're, you're just like somebody that I've never met before. That doesn't mean that you're not perfectly capable of doing this job. It's not that it's that you have to put yourself in their shoes for a second, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. So like breaking into subbing, I think is just about being patient, building a rapport with people and saying yes to gigs that I probably wouldn't be able to say yes to now because it'd have to hoof my drum somewhere for not nearly enough money for too long a time. But those are the kinds of things that you do right when you move here, you know, when you're trying to meet more people. Um, and it's funny cause like, I feel like my worst gigs are always the best stories. They, they season you. I feel like, you know, like I I've done a new year's Eve gig at uh, a holiday Inn in South Philadelphia, you know, like it's real dark. <laughs> it's real dark. It's like, why are we here? Why are we playing? I mean, it's fun. I love music. I love playing the drums, but man, no one wants us here. It's almost like they really wish that we had a volume button because why are we here? But and like, then, yeah. Then the old, older people walk by when you're playing and they're, they're like holding their ears. Yes. Like- <laughs> yes. That's my favorite. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. But like all that kind of stuff informs you. I feel like when you play, other stuff. Like when you go to a theater gig and you've had to play burning up-tempo jazz before, like when it comes up in a show, it's not like a, Oh man, how do I, how am I going to technically be able to do this? You know, like how am I going to be able to play? I remember there being a thing in, uh, in Tootsie actually, the on track of Tootsie was very fast. It was like, I think, uh, yeah, very fast. It was like 300 beats per minute, like half note equals 150. And we were checking the tempo on a little time of rhythm watch thing. But like I had done all that stuff in college so much. I've done all that. I spent all this time like working on my Tony Williams five notes on the ride symbol at 400. And we got to that and I was like, Oh, this, I understand. <laughs> I got to work about on the, all the rest of the show because it's so much more specific, but this, I get to like improvise a little bit. Wow. Like, cool. I'm glad I did that at one point in my life because it made that one moment a lot easier and a lot less to think about. Cause it's just like there it's in your hands already. You know? Do you have a favorite musical that you've done? Um, it's a good question. I gotta be honest. Uh, <laughs> the show I'm doing right now is probably the top of the list, but like, I, I would hate to rank them necessarily, but the ones that I've like particularly enjoyed playing over the years um Moulin Rouge is really fun. Jared's a really fun person to sub for. He wrote great stuff and like that that whole team just did such a good job in making rhythm section parts for that show. So everything that you're doing, there's like a little bit of a, a showy thing to do here and there. There's a lot of pop grooves to play. You're playing with a click most of the time. Um and any any situation like that is is really fun. So I, I really like playing there. 
Um, I've always liked Frozen, actually. It's sad that that one's not coming back. That was really fun to play. Because Sean, too. Like, Sean's one of these people who just does such an amazing job orchestrating parts, and he develops shows so often from the beginning. So he's made so many really brilliant decisions about, you know, what symbol is being played here specifically because it sounds great with this in this room, in this theater specifically, you know? Um, so whenever you go play his drums, they just sound immaculate and they're always in tune somehow. <laughs> Even when he's not there, it's like, wait, dude, did you like come in here and tune these for me? <laughs> Cause they sound so good. Um, but yeah, those, those two are probably up there, but this show I'm doing right now for real. Um, I don't think I've had, more fun ever because all the music is just it's very challenging to play but uh it's also so emotional there's so much like tear-jerking moments in the show where you're like you know at the end of the show in particular there's like two ballads in a row that just like really hits you in the chest um so anything like that anything where there's a show where you can play some sort of uh fulfilling technical thing and also some sort of emotional thing i think when they coexist it's uh it's pretty special what's the name of the show again sorry the name of the show is uh lempica at la jolla playhouse right now l-e-m-p-i-k-a c-k-a but yes l-e-m-p-i-c-k-a um max roach tony williams philly joe maybe Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Dave Weckle. Who are some of your biggest influences as far as drummers are concerned? Other than those that you just mentioned, because they're all huge. Yes. Elvin Jones was huge to me in college. Bill Stewart was another huge one. I transcribed so many Bill Stewart solos. And that's, that's like next level, man. Mm. Have you listened to Bill Stewart a lot? No, no I haven't. No? no? Oh, man. Um, specifically... That record, on um, route, I think is the name of the record, the Schofield Trio record. Mm. Um, you know, guitar trio. There's the drums are basically playing piano. It, uh, they're functioning as the piano. You know, when there's a guitar solo happening, he's not playing a ton of chords. So it's like single line guitar and uh, electric bass, actually walking electric bass. Steve Swallow and the drums and Bill Stewart's playing in general in trio work like the comping piano behind a horn player. So trying to understand that when I was in school was a really big deal. This is somebody you've definitely not heard a ton about is uh, Eric Johnson. He's a drummer from Philly, not the guitar player. Eric Johnson. I was about to say the guitar player. Okay. Yeah. Who was also great. Don't get me wrong, but Eric with a K actually E R I K Johnson. Uh, I hope that, uh, you have an incredibly wide audience for this show. And I hope all of the people that are listening to this go listen to Eric Johnson. Cause um, he played on quite a few um, like singer songwriter things that came out of Philadelphia. But specifically, if you want to check out him, <laughs> um, his band Huffa Moose, H U F F A Moose, Huffa Moose played, I believe it was, Woodstock 94. I'm going to get that wrong. And I hope, I hope I didn't get it wrong, but if I did, I apologize. But his band specifically the first two records, like he was actually a teacher of mine um, at UArts and I didn't 
start listening to his stuff because, you know, he was like, Hey, well, my band is, is really good that I'm no longer in my band. You know, you should go check them out. It was more like a man, this guy, how did more people not know who he is? He's one of the best pocket drummers I've ever heard. And then he sits down and plays with this guy, Ben Schachter, sax player from Philly. And he can burn through straight ahead jazz. It's unbelievable. So like having the ability to do both things where he's in this amazing rock band, there's like songs for days, pocket for days. And then he also over here can go improvise this crazy avant-garde, like some of it's not really even in time, you know, five over four things happening that I don't, I can't to this day, I can't really quantify. Um, his brain just works on another level. And, uh, yeah, he was, he's definitely like a top five influence for me. Uh, Cause I got to study with him a little bit and he's, you know, who I wanted to be musically for a couple of years. I wanted to be able to do all the things that he can do, which I will never be able to do. Cause he's that good. He's just so good. When you play your own gigs, what kind of gear do you use and why? Um, I've never been much of a gearhead. Generally, um, I do love Sabian cymbals. I don't have any endorsements at the moment, but I've, I've found myself using mostly Sabian cymbals and Vic Firth sticks. But uh, other than that, it's like house drums, I hope, <laughs> you know? Um, but ideally, you know, I, 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 just, I love Gretsch drums. I love DW drums. Um, Evans heads, Remo heads. I mean, they're heads. I, I feel like they all make great products. Um, I have Remo heads that I love. I have Remo heads that I don't love and vice versa for other brands. Um, but yeah, it, just, it depends on the music, really, what gear I end up using. Because you're not going to bring an 18-inch bass drum to a wedding gig unless it's only a jazz gig. If you can't make music on like less than ideal gear in what we do, like, we're, you know, if you're not bringing your, your drums everywhere, you have to kind of leave that, uh, that ideal at the door that like, Oh, it's going to sound exactly like it was when we rehearsed it. Like sometimes when you're doing gigs, we're not, not specifically theater stuff now, but like I played in so many bands where we would go rehearse and I would bring my drums to the singer's house or something. And it would sound exactly the way I wanted it to sound. And then we'd go to the studio and the only drums they had at the studio were like, you know, so much bigger than my drums or whatever, or, or smaller than my drums. And you have to make the same sounds where now we're recording or now we're, we're playing at Dobbs in South Philly somewhere like, uh, oh, there's only one Tom at Dobbs, <laughs> you know, there's no rack Tom and all the fills I used to play in all these songs that were very specific. And like, I orchestrated this part. Now, what do I do? Like I, now you got to figure it out. And the gig starts in 10 minutes, you know, like you, you don't have time to go, like, okay, well, I'm going to etch this into my part because there's no part and there's no uh, time. Right. <laughs> so you have to figure it out. So another, thing, <laughs> another thing about subbing on shows or even playing shows, you're playing Jared's drums, you're playing Sean's drums, you're playing Joe's drums, mm -hmm. you're playing Paul's drums, you're playing... Andre's drums and they're all five different types of drums five different setups so you have to be versatile enough to be able to step into those situations and sure. and sound like them yeah. so it's it's you know having that ability to play on 
less than ideal equipment is a is a, is a plus. I've never even thought about that before. Yeah, totally. I mean, and also, I, I wanted to make a point about that. Actually, so many people have said the obvious thing in in your show that, like, when you're learning a show, try to set up just like the regular guy, you know. And I think that's obviously smart. Like, the, how are you possibly going to learn exactly where that triangle is in the heat of battle? Can you get to that Miller machine in time? Can you get to that one weird, hard to get to spot in the setup if, if you haven't actually practiced the muscle memory of getting there? There's obviously something to be said about that. But you also have to give up the inkling that you're going to be comfortable on that first show. You know, like you're going to sit down, you're going to be nervous, and stuff is not going to be where you thought it was. The best you can do in your practice studio to get the throne height the same to get the snare angle the same like something for damien right i subbed one show at uh superhero for him and then our schedules didn't line up so i couldn't do another one but i got all, all of it together pretty quickly and that was the biggest thing it was like okay well when i practice this in my studio i don't even know if i have a snare stand that angles properly <laughs> but but you know I, I didn't go i went into it thinking like okay well you can't be hitting that loud we're we're in a very, very small room. So I'm, when I practice this, I'm not going to assume that I need a, a solid, loud rim shot the whole time. And that got me through. It was like, okay, well, I don't, I know I'm not going to be comfortable. So let me just focus on what I can control. Try not to drop the sticks and, uh, you know, know the music so that you can deal with all the other stuff. You can deal with the conductor. You can deal with finding the ride bell when you need to get to it for something. You know, it's crazy that, those little things like that can make a performance feel terrible when you get to the end. Like, man, you know, it just didn't feel right because they're not your drums. <laughs> it's never really going to feel like they're your drums. You know, you got to relinquish that, that responsibility that it feel completely comfortable to you. You know, where can people find you on social media website? Yeah. Social media. Instagram is great. If you want to DM me on Instagram, I'm pretty active on there. Um, I get, I don't post a lot, but I talk to a lot of people. So <laughs> I'm, I'm around. I, I monitor that. Uh, I do have a website. I have a YouTube channel, but I don't have the energy to keep it going, man. But you know, go check those out. I do have a couple videos on there and I was pretty proud of how they came out. Um, not just the playing so much as like, I was pretty happy with the way they look too. Cause I spent a lot of time during the pandemic, like just pouring over those videos. Like, how do I make this transition look better? How many, how many times can I record this just to get that one word to sound right? You know? So, but yeah, my website is a good spot. Instagram's a good spot. And what's the website? Uh, it's just danberkerydrums.com. D-A-N-B-E-R-K-E-R-Y. Drums. Yes. Drums. Dot mm -hmm. com. Dot com. All right. <laughs> Lempika is now at... La Jolla Playhouse in the wonderful mm -hmm. area of Southern California. And you start performances when? We start previews on June 14th. Oh, wow. Okay. We open end of June and we run till, as of now, I believe it's July 24th. It's the last day. Enough time to enjoy La Jolla, but also, you know, not too, too, too long. I wish you well on this new show. Hopefully, hopefully it will open up as soon as you guys close in La Jolla, there's going to be a theater opening. Actually, I'm sure there probably will be. 
you grab one and it runs for a good 15, 20 years. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Again, thanks again. And uh, we will hopefully see each other on the Broadway campus in New York City. Yes, sir. Thanks, right. man. Thanks for Thank having me. Thank you, Dan. Talk to you soon. Pleasure. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast.